Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I know it's been at least four or five days uh, since I was on the air last with all of you, but I'm glad to be back on the air, and I'm sure many of you all were wondering, where are we going to go next? In other words, what direction is the time machine going to take us when it comes to uh, learning about historical events? Well, our time machine's going to take us to the year 1787. Although we were, to some extent, in 1787, the last uh, time I was on the air with you all in terms of uh, discussing Shays' Rebellion, the American Revolution's final battle, but I decided, after finishing Shays' Rebellion, why not stick with 1787? After all, Shays' Rebellion was the straw that broke the camel's back, and making America, that is, America's leaders like George Washington, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, just to name a few prominent men, realize that something needed to be done about this existing government that was pretty much, in their eyes, flawed and no longer relevant. So, I've decided that our next book we're going to discuss is written by the same authors, or I should say not just the same authors, but the same couple, Denise Kiernan and Joseph Diagnes, whom wrote Signing Their Lives Away, the fame, the fame and Misfortune of the Men Who Signed the Declaration of Independence. Many of you all who were with me last year uh, remember that book, but they also wrote another book together. It might as well be a sequel of sorts, it's not the Declaration of Independence, Part 2. How about signing their rights away, the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the U.S. Constitution? So, that is our next book that we're going to be discussing. And I'd like to uh, start off with an introduction behind this uh, book. Not just the book itself, but an introduction that will give us a very... Um, good sense of direction on where it is that we're going to be going because when all of us think of the U.S. Constitution we think of it as a document that okay yes it's been around for over 233 years but there's more to the document itself how about getting to know the people who were behind this document that to me is the greater story onto itself so Let's start with our introduction. Let's fasten our seatbelts. Let's get ready for the ride. America has produced its fair share of important dates throughout her history since 1607 when England, when the English rather, I should say, first arrived to the New World. 1607, folks, the English came to Virginia or at the time it wasn't Virginia, but they named it Virginia after the Virgin uh, Queen being uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, I. Of course, she had already passed away four years earlier in 1603, but that is for whom um, Virginia was named after, being um, for uh, Queen Elizabeth, uh, who was the uh, Virgin Queen, and in large part because she had, had never married. Important dates throughout America's history have served her both for the better and during uh, the worst of times. 
when I think of uh, important dates that have been for the better, this one uh, most of us do know, but a lot of other people don't. I know April 19th, 1775 is important. How so? Well, America uh, went to war with England. We may not have declared war because we weren't a, an actual country. We had not officially declared our full separation from England, but shots were heard around the world as um, tra American transcendentalist uh, poet Ralph Waldo Emerson would say years later, that the shots were heard round the world. In other words, that, uh, that America had stood up to the mightiest empire in the world by going head to toe. So that's one important date that, uh, that serves us well for good reasons. Another important date is Memorial Day. Of course, well, rather I should say a holiday, but it's, to me it's an important date too because Memorial Day uh, we honor the sacrifices uh, that the men and women whom have served are united in the United States military who have lost their lives, uh, we must always remember them for their um, for their ever, for their ever so uh, gracious uh, sacrifices. But in terms of uh, dates that um, that have that have uh, served for the, in, for incidents that were for the for not the best of times, I think of November 22nd, 1963, although I wasn't alive, but that date is one that lives in infamy for my uh, parents' uh, generation, uh, because to them, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, it was their 9-11. A lot of innocence was lost on that day. And then, of course, September 11th, 2001, is a date that, for my generation, uh, being one that would live in infamy because on that date I remember seeing a lot of innocents get lost as well. So historical dates for Americans have been for the better and for the worst and even if they've been for the worst of times we must still remember to not forget about those who passed away under unforeseen circumstances that they had no control over, whether it was on 9-11 or uh, Pearl Harbor, or even for uh, President John F. Kennedy. But that's just my take on it. Perhaps it's fair to say that many Americans uh, prefer choosing July 4th, 1776 as the number one most important day in U.S. history. There's nothing wrong with that. On the other hand, though, uh, I believe many of you all remembered from the series last year's signing their rights away about the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence. Let's just uh, be reminded of the fact that um, not everyone got together just for a couple of days to declare their official separation from England. And, of course, we were told for years that all the delegates that attended that is, 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence, we were led to believe that everybody signed the document on the 4th of July. Well, it turns out that on July 2nd, there was unanimous uh, consent or agreement upon the delegates to move forward with um, officially declaring separation from England once and for all, and that two days later, 
the Declaration of Independence as a document was officially approved to where July 4th became our official Independence Day as we know, even after almost 245 years later. So yes, while many Americans take pride in celebrating July 4th festivities from attending parades to watching fireworks lit into the skies, too often we forget about what sacrifices were made by our forefathers, whom risked everything in severing their ties with England. Even one of our signers, who signed the Declaration of Independence being Charles Carroll of Maryland, who would go on to become the last signer to die, Charles Carroll uh, wrote on the document uh, his name, but also where he resided in Maryland because uh, there was, it, it just so happened that there was another man by the name of Charles Carroll who lived not far from him. And knowing that Charles Carroll, who signed the document, he knew that he was risking it all, but at the same time he did not want an innocent man to die for something that he... Um, that he had nothing in, to do with, but yet he didn't want to jeopardize that other man's um, safety, all because he had the same name as the signer, a.k.a. Charles Carroll of Carrollton, Maryland, did. So, it's yes, it's one thing to sign a document, but when you sign that document, yes, you could be risking everything. And as Benjamin Franklin said, we shall all come together as one or hang together separately. I think all 56 of those men who signed the Declaration of Independence af after July 4th, because historians now know that most of the signings by those uh, delegates took place in August, but it is very fair to say that all 56 of them came together and not one man died, although you know some men did see their properties uh, confiscated, some men saw you know, properties um, destroyed. One of the signers, uh, Francis Lewis, his wife was imprisoned during the American Revolutionary War for a couple of years, and once she was released, uh, she sadly died. So, ju yes, just because our forefathers came together to declare their separation from England, declaring separation from England wasn't peaceful, folks. Yes, we can attend parades and watch fireworks lit into the skies, but our forefathers didn't have that luxury. They didn't have time for barbecues and cookouts. So when we do celebrate the 4th of July, let's just remember what past generations were not able to do. They laid the groundwork so that we could have a better future. Although I think they would be happy, that is men like Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, to name a few, I believe they all would be happy to know that, they, that we celebrate the 4th of July with fireworks, uh, attending parades, to having cookouts. While all that entertainment is great, do you think they would be happy to know that, yes, many of us probably do remember the sacrifices they made, but at the same time there are a lot of people who have forgotten those sacrifices. So. I believe that whenever we celebrate the 4th of July, we must, we must pay respect all the time to those who made the ultimate sacrifices for our country. It should be that way all the time, not just on the 4th of July. 
But anyways, uh, moving on forward with what we're discussing, let's forward seven years after July 4th, 1776 and 1783, when the Treaty of Paris formally ends the American Revolutionary War altogether. So let's remember, folks, it wasn't um, at the Battle of uh, Yorktown, or a.k.a. the surrender of Yorktown, on October 19th, 1781. While, yes, the British surrendered, it still took at least two more years to get everything resolved for the last, to where the last of the British soldiers that were still in um, the United States, whom were still fighting, it, it took another two years to remove those soldiers to, you know, realize that, hey, you've lost this war. You've conceded the Northwest Territory of what we now know as Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, and Wisconsin. It's time for you all to move on and let America be America without foreign intrusion. That's easier said than done because there still is foreign intrusion in America. You've got France occupying what we now know as the Louisiana Territory. You've still got Spain in that whole sector as well. The United States um, has a government to operate under, but it's nothing worth feeling good about long term. From 1781 into the early part of 1787, the United States functioned under the Articles of Confederation. Okay, well, why isn't this government so good? Isn't government supposed to be good even if you have one? <laughs> no, not necessarily. Under the Articles of Confederation, um, this governing system deprived the federal government's ability to tax people, to tax goods, to tax properties, businesses, okay? If you can't tax people, you can't tax goods, you can't tax people's personal properties, and let alone a business, then how else can a federal government generate revenue just to be able to not only function on a day-by-day -day basis, but to also perform the most basic of 101 needs that will um, that will meet uh, not only the people's needs but ensure the people that hey they have something that they can look up to that is relevant even if even if if it means at times they don't always agree with decisions being made well <laughs> if the federal government was barred from the practice of taxation <laughs> The Articles of Confederation didn't provide plans for raising troops, building ships, to protecting the nation's national security. Okay? You know, yes, each state may have its own militia, but do you think militias are going to be able to respond to the call of duty if it involves war with a foreign nation? No. You know, we need to have a navy, folks. We've got to protect our harbors somehow. And what does a navy require? Ships. Troops require, armies require troops. Of course, even in the post-revolutionary war era, states are fearful of standing armies. Standing armies in their eyes are not good in times of peace because in times of peace they can wear out their welcome to where everyday people become all the more distrustful. And then, yes, when we think of national security, we think of terrorist threats in today's time. But in, in the late 18th century, national security, to me, 
refers to the frontier, that the Western territories where Indians are still um, are still in control along that Northwest Territory of Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin. You know, think about this: Indians can lead raids into settlements where people's lives can be lost, people's li- people can be taken uh, captive as uh, prisoners. So we don't really have any way of negotiating um, release of prisoners. To me, that is a national a red flag involving our national security, just one of many. To make matters even more complicated, nine out of 13 states had their own naval forces, which included individual foreign policy agendas, as well as imposing taxes on goods from other states. Okay, that's great that nine out of 13 states have their own naval forces, but to me, it's absurd to think that Virginia can actually do business with England and that the other states would find that practicable practicable or let alone acceptable. But yet if the federal government tried to intervene, they'd shoot all nine or all 13 states as separate entities would shoot down the federal government. They don't want the federal government telling them how to operate. Think about this. People are still leery of what folks power not just power but how much power one institution should have over the institutions below what do you know there were no courts in existence that could settle disputes between states especially when it came to to situations like new york and new hampshire fighting over whom had the rights regarding territory in between. Present-day Vermont folks, New York and New Hampshire, fought over who had control to the territory in between their, two, in between their states. Vermont borders both states. Maryland and Virginia taxed one, ano- one another over uh, when it came to um, ships entering the Potomac River as well as into the Chesapeake Bay for... Uh, intra and interstate commerce purposes, most notably interstate commerce. In other words, they fought over who had the right to tax the other. And then you had that infamous rebellion in Massachusetts that, um, that required uh, General Benjamin Lincoln and his forces to, um, to go um, above and beyond to um, defend the Springfield arsenal from falling into the hands of the insurgents. If these things don't raise red flags, then I don't know what does. But if you have problems like these, then you know that the existing government needs to be replaced soon before it's too late. Although banks existed, they were private. And if they were and if you have banks that are private folks, that means that they're only going to cater to those who have money, the wealthy. So yes, although banks existed, they were private. Each state issued its own currency, okay? You have currency in North Carolina that is different from Virginia. The currency in North Carolina may have value there, but if you try going into Virginia and using North Carolina money, <laughs> good luck. You may not get any face value out of it whatsoever. Although each state issued its own currency, 
one thing we've got to keep in mind is this. A, ma a majority of Americans being farmers, roughly 90% of the U.S. population struggled to make ends meet regarding mortgage payments and outstanding debts. That was part of the problem there with Shays' rebellion, which led many aristocratic men of elite mercantile and plantation class statuses to fear the all-out inevitable, a.k.a. anarchy. So why would men whom are of elite mercantile and plantation class statuses care to begin with? Well, they're the ones that probably can invest more in the government. They're the ones that could probably see to it that jobs are created. Mercantile class being in New England, the plantation class in the South, they're the ones that have the resources. And if you have resources, then use it wisely to benefit not just yourselves, but to uh, benefit the greater public short and long term. Thank goodness America had its share of prominent men whom cared enough to realize that if governmental reform didn't happen soon, then the United States as a nation faced, a, faced an all-out collapse. Okay, when I think of prominent men, how about George Washington, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton to Benjamin Franklin, including other notables, went about proposing an event where delegates would assemble together to make America more relevant. And this wasn't a campaign slogan. But these men knew that if that the only way to go about making America more relevant was to bring people from all over the, the United States, that is from all 13 states, to come together as one to do something about this fledgling government. Because even they themselves knew that probably in 1787 the only thing they would have had to have feared was fear itself. And the longer the fear stays around, the greater the likelihood that anarchy could take over. So yes, uh, men like George Washington, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and Benjamin Franklin, including other notables, were willing to go above and beyond to make America more relevant regarding, with regards to her governmental setup. Come May of 1787, 55 out of 74 delegates chosen by their respective states answered the call in attending convention gathering at the same building where the Declaration of Independence got signed. Does anybody want to know what that building is in Philadelphia? I'll give you some choices. Carpenters Hall? Independence Hall? Who, what do you all think? The answer is Independence Hall. Turns out that Carpenters Hall was where the First Continental Congress convened in 1774. But nonetheless, they're both in Philadelphia. Eleven years earlier, back in 1776, delegates had assembled in Philadelphia to band together by declaring their official separation from England. But the post-Revolutionary War era wasn't one of good feelings. Thirteen states operated as individual sovereign entities, 
but yet became distrustful amongst one another, especially the smaller states, whom were fearful of larger states. Why would smaller states be fearful of larger states? Well, we can uh, find that out here um, shortly, folks. Everyone attending would want something, and how true that is. Everybody wants uh, a piece of the pie. But if you, want, if you want a piece of the pie in terms of contributing, in order to achieve any objective, big or small, there needs to be a willingness to do something. What does that mean, folks? It's something that many of our politicians in today's time need to do more regularly. How about the word compromise? Okay. Yes, people from New men from New England and men from down south are are different. The mercantile economy versus a plantation economy, yes, it is very different. But I do believe that men from New England and men from the Middle Atlantic states and as well as from the southern states do have a lot in common. But in order to reform the current state of government, it is going to take a lot of compromising. Prior to September 17, 1787, more than a dozen delegates had left Philadelphia. Okay, is something not right here? Well, some left, some left um, because they weren't happy with the end result. But it's like that old saying, you're not going to be able to please everyone. On the other hand, other delegates left Philadelphia prior to September 17, 1787, for various personal reasons. So it's a little bit of everything. But those who remained worked tirelessly to ensure America's welfare came first over politics, including personal advancement. So in other words, it is fair to say that um, those who stayed behind were willing to make the necessary sacrifices, which included making compromises. That meant doing what was best for the nation as a whole, rather than um, seeking out personal gain. And isn't it fair to say that when people compromise, that it's us, we, ourselves, versus I, me, myself? I think so. So in the end, 39 men came together by putting aside all personal desires, which meant compromising to secure America's long-term future. Unfortunately for many of the 39 signers, did you hear that, folks? 39 men signed the United States Constitution. 56 men signed the Declaration of Independence. Do I believe that more, more than 39 men could have signed the Constitution? Sure. But the fact that 39 men signed out of 55, I'd say that's still pretty remarkable. Unfortunately for many of these men, or I rather I should say for all 39 signers, they have faded away, meaning their stories haven't been shared with the greater public. Yes, we know about this document. We know that there are three branches of government. That's great. We know that the Bill of Rights are, the, are essentially our first 10 amendments. But do we really know, deep down inside, the men that signed the Constitution? Do we really know who they are as individuals 
and what sacrifices they made and what they brought forward when assembling together as, as one whole body. I should tell you this right now. We will learn about, uh, I'll name a few men right now whom we'll be learning about. I mean, we will learn as many men as I can um, tell tell you all about because, yes, I would like to uh, talk to you all about uh, more than, uh, say, just 13 men. I don't know if we will talk about all 39 men, but I can promise you that we will do everything, I will do everything there is in my power to talk about a majority of these men. I'm sure many of you all probably don't know who Nathaniel Gorham is, John Langdon, Jared Ingersoll, Robert Morris, Daniel Carroll, John Dickinson, John Blair, John Rutledge, Charles Pinckney, just to name a few out there, folks. But those are just some of the many men we'll be talking about. Ironically, 22 out of the 39 signers served in various military occupations during the Revolutionary War. Five were captured and imprisoned by the British. Two of the 39 signers died in duels. 18 out of the 39 were trained in the area of law, whereas the remainder were merchants plantation owners, to, finan to financiers whom focus their agendas surrounding the nation's elite. Okay? If they're focusing their agenda surrounding the nation's elite, does that mean that ignoring those who are not of elite status is a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I can tell you this much, folks. When the 39 signers convene, well, I wouldn't say so much the 39 men who signed the Constitution, even the uh, other uh, delegates who ended up not signing who were there, all of them, yes, they, want, they obviously knew that they had to come away with something. But at the same time, they all knew that they couldn't please everyone. The bottom line is, is that they knew that even when they brought the, uh, a copy of the document back to their respective states for their state legislatures to ratify or delegates to ratify, they knew that there were going to be people who weren't going to be happy with certain sections of the document. But somehow, but somehow this was the best that they could come up with, or rather they were able to come up with in Philadelphia. You're going to hear me say this um, saying a lot. I'll start off by saying it right now. Benjamin Franklin said it very well. It may not be the most perfect document, but it's the best we could come up with. In other words, it's not going to cater to everybody. We can't guarantee you that this document is going to give you everything top of the line that you would like. All we can guarantee is that it's a solid 101 base. In other words, it's a solid 101 document that will change over time, and with time, it, it will get better. In other words, okay, we may not have amendments right away, but once it's been ratified by all the states, then we can start adding amendments, a.k.a. like the Bill of Rights, 
We should see September 17, 1787 as more than just a date known as Constitution Day in America. I see it as a day, and even the authors themselves, Denise Kiernan and Joseph D. Agnes, mentioned, and it's very, very powerful and true. September 17, 1787 ought to be seen as a day where the United States emerged from infancy to adulthood. So let's look at it this way, folks. Under the Articles of Confederation, we really were an infant. We had no true direction. People were distrustful of one another. But couldn't you still say that even under the Constitution, it's still somewhat distrustful? Sure. But I would say it's far less distrustful with the new governing document, a.k.a. the U.S. Constitution, versus the Articles of Confederation, which gave the federal government zero power. Under the Constitution, the federal government has powers, far more powers, for the right reasons. What are some differences between the U.S. Constitution and the Declaration of Independence? I'm sure many of you all are thinking to yourselves, why is Kirk Monroe, your all's presenter since June of last year, asking this random question? And I'm sure many of you all are thinking to yourselves, oh, I already know the answers. Well, if you do, that's a good thing. But at the same time, you might actually be surprised to know that there is more to the truth. So let's find out some differences between the U.S. Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Number one, the U.S. Constitution begins with the following, we the people. That has been debated regularly since the Constitution was first established. If someone asked me, Kirk, what how would you go about defining we the people? Well, the way I see it is this. We the people refers to those individuals who were in Philadelphia from May of 1787 up until September of that year who worked tirelessly to go above and beyond to ensure that a new governing document could replace the existing one that was in a very, very fragile state. So I, I say with sincere heart that we the people pertains to the framers, the ones who actually established our government. That's just my take, but then again, everyone else is entitled to their own opinion. On the other hand, the Declaration of Independence starts with the following when in the course of human events. What that, to me, refers to is the course of human events is a history of mankind where past events, similar to what our forefathers were facing, led them to go down that same path to where they had exhausted every available option known to try to make amends with the mother country, a.k.a. England, by extending that olive branch petition, requesting that taxes, certain taxes be repealed, requesting that um, 
people, most notably legislators or elected officials from America, could go over to Parliament, England, and actually serve in Parliament to make sure that their constituents' needs were actually being met. It's kind of hard to meet people's needs when, you're, when they live 3,000 miles away. That's just my 101 interpretation of it. The Constitution, though, governs Americans with a three-tier governing system. Legislative, executive, and judicial branches. Whereas the Declaration of Independence served as a document for declaring official separation from England. In other words, there were no, there were no uh, branches of government under the Declaration of Independence. Um, however, there were hundreds of grievances. Well, I don't know if I'd say hundreds. There were at least 30 or 40 grievances listed. Uh, some of them, for example, were like, you know, the king has um, imposed taxes on us without our consent. Of course, that's where we get taxation without representation. And then uh, another one I found unique was um, being tried for offenses that called um, for people to be um, um, transposed miles away, meaning miles away. We're not talking 20 and 30 miles. We're, we're talking about being sent overseas to be tried for offenses that did not happen in England. Um, you know, those uh, coercive acts of 1774 where Parliament had uh, closed the port of Boston as a result of uh, the people of Boston dumping over 300 chests of tea into the Charles River. That, that's why, that was one of the reasons why those coercive acts were passed, but it, uh, it was also uh, a way to say, okay, you will be tried overseas for any crimes committed on your own home soil. In other words, by trying you over in England, you will not have anyone to represent you. You will basically um, be sent to jail and never heard from again. So basically, the Declaration of Independence, yes, it, it was our document that, um, that called for separation from England, but it was also a document that listed the grievances for why we were separating from England. The Constitution is an official document for which presidents, soldiers, to government officials must swear in upholding and protecting when being administered to their newly elected positions. You know, when the President of the United States takes the oath of office, he says, I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the oath of office as President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, so help me God. So that's what the Constitution offer, um, provides for right there. The Declaration of Independence did not, does not govern the American people. What it did provide, as I said earlier, was a framework in terms of listing all the grievances for why we wanted to abandon our allegiance to the crown. In other words, sever our ties altogether. Prior to May 25th, 1787, when the start of the Constitutional Convention first began, the United States was governed by the Congress of the Confederation, which convened in New York City. 
So we did have a Congress, but there again, like the Articles of Confederation is that fledgling document, governing document was, we had a Congress that was around but obviously could not do much because the states were the ones that ran the show and the states were fearful of what Congress could and could not do all in the name of power. Now, we're not far from wrapping up this introduction, but I do believe that this question must be addressed to all of you. What topic got debated a great deal? from uh, May of 1787, 1787 up until September. Does anybody want to take a stab at it? How about representation? Is it fair to say that some of our 13 states are smaller? And is it fair to say that some of our 13 states are larger? States most notably smaller ones like New Jersey and Delaware wanted each state in Congress to have exactly one vote regardless of population. That was the New Jersey plan. So in other words, Virginia is much larger than New Jersey. Remember in 1787, Virginia's territory includes present-day West Virginia, Ohio, probably safe to say Indiana, and it's safe to say parts of Kentucky and Tennessee as well. So I could see how... Um, Delegates from New Jersey and Delaware are fearful that the states like Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Mass even Massachusetts, because remember folks, the state of Maine at that time, Maine's not even a state. Massachusetts has all of Maine. Maine won't become a state for another 33 years. You have to go to 1820 for that when the Missouri Compromise takes place. But I could see how New Jersey and Delaware are very fearful of Virginia, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania because they have such large territories, and the states that have large territories in their eyes are going to be the ones probably running the show because they will have uh, larger, uh, not only just larger populations to represent, but they will have far more influence. But then again, large states like Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts advocated representation in Congress be based on population of each state. Okay? So this is something to think about, folks. Representation in Congress being based on the population of each state. You know, uh, Delaware, in today's modern world, for example, only has three, um, three electoral votes. Virginia has 13. Delaware has only three counties. So therefore, it's probably fair to say with Delaware's population that one uh, representative um, that is serving in the U.S. House of Representatives is fit enough to be able to cater to the needs of all three count of all the citizens of Delaware from her three respectful counties, respective counties rather. Well, don't you find this all interesting, folks? I mean, I may not have provided the most perfect of 101 um, introduction, but it's the best that I can give you all. Even Benjamin Franklin probably would have agreed, too. I look forward to uh, this book, with, and I learned a great deal when I read it um, back in September of last year. Matter of fact, I got it in Colonial Williamsburg, and I thought to myself, hey, if signing their lot 
their lives away about the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence was important, why not the same about the United States Constitution? They're both relevant documents, folks. So let's just keep in mind this, too. As I said earlier, yes, July 4th is a great holiday. It's an important holiday for the United States. And hard to believe that we're coming up on 245 years. That seems like a long time, but we're still a young country. But yet, our Constitution is the oldest document in the world. 233 years old? I think that's remarkable unto itself. Even in these trying of, in the most trying of times, not just what happened back in January at the Capitol, but even during times in the midst of a pandemic, so when we think of the U.S. Constitution as well, folks, let's keep in mind that um, the signers of this document were signing their rights away. In other words, they were signing their rights away to say that, hey, we're willing to give up what we're living under so that we can live under something else that's far better, something else that's far more functional, something else that's, that's got... Um, a proper interpretation of separation of powers, a proper government that has branches where one branch cannot overpower the other. Well, folks, we've covered a lot of ground, and I hope to be back on the air again soon. Um, I will be going on assignment, but I won't tell you where I'm going on assignment. It's not a bad thing. I just don't think it's probably necessary. But I will say it's a surprise. But I'll reveal that surprise when I come back from being on assignment. But I do hope to be back on the air again before I go on assignment. If, if I'm not, I don't want any of you all to uh, worry. But what I have done here is at least given you all a guideline to let you all know, my listeners, where we're going next. And by doing so, you all can breathe a sigh of, sigh of relief and know that, hey, we've got something else fun to look forward to. And I, and I know that all of you are going to learn a lot of things that you didn't know before. Not just about the Constitution as a document, but perhaps about the men who signed this document. Because after all, they have stories to tell as well. Thank you again for listening. You all are, are wonderful. And if you all know of any people out there who want a podcast you just tell them to come to anchor it's free the opportunities are limitless and the, and the results go beyond the sky ceiling i've probably said that a million times but i don't say don't mind saying it again because after all for all the plays i get per episode the word is getting out so thank you for spreading that word take care and stay safe